Hey everybody, today I had the pleasure to sit down and have an in-depth conversation with none other than Chico Fernandez. Chico is an old school romantic and a true gentleman at heart. There's nothing brash or loud about his appearance or demeanor. We chat about his early years in Cuba, kite flying as a kid, and his introduction to fly fishing. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. So Chico, we've been friends for a long time. I've known you for a long time, and it's so great to be in your home. Um, and welcome to the uh, the Millhouse podcast. Yes, yeah, thank you, and welcome to my home. Well, it's a it's an honor, and it's a privilege oh, to be uh, have been your friend uh, for a number of years. And so, let's just go ahead and get started. What I want to do, you you were inducted into the Fishing Hall of Fame in two thousand and sixteen. Yes. You know, what, a, what an honor and what a privilege. What did this mean to you? You know, it, it means a lot for several reasons. But one of the reasons is uh, when, you, when you're uh, um, giving such an honor, one of the most important things is who gives you that honor. And uh, I think a lot of the IGFA, what they've done, the people that work in it, most of them anglers and so on. So when they when they inducted it, I was just thrilled. I, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Well, you know, your story, your, your acceptance speech was just riveting. You spoke for about 30 minutes or so talking about your, your life in Cuba. Yes. To the States and, and what fishing has meant to you. And if you don't mind, why don't you just kind of recap a little bit about, about your life, you know, fishing at a, as a young man, and what happened in 1959 when your family came to Miami, you know? Let's just go ahead and, and have you start those early steps. All right. Um, I was born in Cuba to a family of fishermen, so I was very lucky. I started fishing with my dad. Um, it was handline fishing. The handline in those days in 1946 or so was white, bright cotton line that the fish could see very well, at least according to my dad. So we dyed that that white cotton with the mangrove roots to make it brown hmm. uh, so the fish wouldn't see it. Frankly, it looked like an anchor rope, but <laughs> the fish wouldn't see it. And I started fishing hand line. When I was even younger, 
I wasn't allowed to fish. I was like four years old, three, but they'd bring me in the boat. And what they did is when they caught snapper and little grouper and like that, if they were too small to keep, they'd put them on a pail of water. And I would play with the fish for a while, and then we would send them home to their mommy and daddy and like, like that. Eventually, when I was about six, uh, it was decided I was ready. So I started fishing with this hand line and caught, you know, with bait and so on, caught all these snapper and grouper and, and grunts and so on. In 1952, my dad came to United States for a while. Politically, he had to leave Cuba and we lived in the United States for about two years. During that time, I was around 12 years old, more or less, I discovered spinning tackle. So two years later, when I came back to Cuba, I was no longer fishing with a, with a hand line. I was above that. My dad thought I was doing it wrong because I couldn't feel the strike with your hand like a hand line, but I didn't care. I was using lures. I was casting jigs in the mouth of a river, catching snook and baby tarpon and so on. So I stayed with the spinning rod. My dad made a lot of money on real estate uh, in, the, in the middle, late 50s. So soon, uh, besides racing on a two-seater, 190 Mercedes-Benz, uh, I was uh, fishing more out of boats and my father bought a yacht. And for some reason that I don't remember, he couldn't find a captain that he liked there. So he came to Miami and found this fellow, Don Roban, and Don spoke some Spanish and everything else. So we were cool. He was the new captain. I took him to the mouth of the Hibacoa River uh, to cast my jig and cash snook and show him uh, how it was done here in Cuba. And my goodness, he pulled out out of a tube a nine and a half foot bamboo um, baton kill fly rod um, and started casting for snook with that. And he, and he caught snook. But the thing was, I saw the line in the air. I was enamored. Uh, I'm a romantic guy, and this, this just, this just, uh, this was me. So I started trying to get fly rods in, in Cuba, which there there were none. But we brought some from the states and so on. And one of the things we brought was another Orvis nine and a half foot for a GAF, which is like an eight weight. By the way, I still have the rod upstairs in the garage, and every winter during Christmas, I put a line on and I cast it, and you know, I can still cast 80 feet with it or 85 feet with it with no problem. The loop is bigger, but she's wonderful, <laughs> uh, and, and I keep her there. And when you open the tube, you smell the wood and the, and the varnish and everything else. Wow, that's really interesting. It would be like me having my first pair of downhill skis, you know, yes, at the age of yes. 13 or whatever. Yes, yes. So, you, so, so I started fishing with it. I never, I, actually I caught snook and like that. I never caught, um, never landed tarpon for a while. Eventually, south of Havana, there is a, a town, Batabano, which has a lot of commercial fishermen. And what you did there, you got a rowboat, you hired uh, uh, the boat, and you rowed maybe 500 feet or so where the shrimp boats have, um, and, and even the, the, the boats that caught a lot of uh, snapper and grouper and like that, were cleaning fish and cleaning shrimp and all that. And where they were, of course, 
there was a ball of tarpon so tight it was black. If you cast a lure or a bait in front, in, in the center of that hole, you'd hook a fish immediately. He'd cut you off as he swam through the other tarpon. The line would cut you off. It was, you'd have to cast on the size and so on. But anyway, there were tarpon there from 15 pounds or so to 100. I brought my flower rod, hook one, and landed the fish. It's about 20 pounds, which is on the photograph behind me. Uh, it, I don't remember how long it took, but I was high sticking it <laughs> for all I had. I was looking cool, you know. The yeah, rod sure. was bent. Get a camera, you know. The, uh, so uh, that was the the beginning of another love affair with the, with a fish that jumped, was beautiful, made long runs, and so on. Uh, so <clears throat> I fished with a fly rod and then and spinning rod um, till 1959. Uh, actually, till 1958, December 31st. Uh, that day, Batista left. Castro was in the mountains. It took him six days to get, walk all the way to Havana and take over the country. And um, my father left because he knew Castro and he knew things were going to be good. And um, we visited in Miami and came back and so on. But eventually that year, 1959, we decided we had to live here. And that's when Castro took over. Yes, 1959, uh, six, it was the 6th of January. Anyway, uh, the way I came to this country was on that 190 SL Mercedes-Benz. There was a uh, ferry. I put my mother in the car. It's a two-seater um, automobile. And she puts her jewels and all that, and I put my jewels, which were basically the fly rods and, and so on, um, and a Pate Philippe watch, uh, if I may add, and landed in Key West the next morning, rode to Miami. I'm still here 60 years later. I uh, had the Mercedes for about two years. Flip Pallet and I, and little John and I, would go to the Tamiami Trail to fish for the snook that always fish, always popped the shorelines there. And, um, I drive at 110 mile an hour flat out over there. And I still remember driving, I believe, with Flip one time, and it was raining, and I'd slow down in 195. And uh, Flip said, Chico, it's raining. And I said, I know, I, I slowed it down a bit. <laughs> Only young people, and he agreed, oh, okay, no, we're cool. We're good. We weren't cool, we're we were going like a bat out of hell with the rain pouring. But that was, that's what you do with your young. I know sure. you know that. You're, you're bulletproof. You know it, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So I, then I came to this country. Um, Miami was minute. Within a, within a week, I, I met in a tackle shop, Bill Curtis, who was not guiding then. He was a photographer and helped well-known photographers and so on. And we talked for a little while, and I told him snook was my favorite fish. It still is, and it still is. Um, and Bill said, I know we can catch snook. Really? Well, I'd like to go. When? He said, right now, I know. Really? Where? The Tamiami Trail. So I said, let's go. I have my rod here. So I, I got to make a phone call first. You can't just go to the trail like that. Okay. He called Rocky Weinstein in Everglades City. Rocky lived there. 
he knew what bridge of all the Tamiami Trail, the snook were popping. It was bridge 50. We got in the car. We drove over there. Rocky was waiting for us. There was snook popping all over the shoreline. We took 30 fish in one afternoon without thinking about it in those days. Were the fishing in, in that time of year or... 1959 in the early 60s i can't even imagine how good it was and we'll get to that but i'd like to first before we get into the fishing in miami and and your your pals let's go back to cuba briefly you told me a story one time about how you guys used to fly kites out of your building oh my god i want to hear the kite story and you met a friend tell me that story yes uh when, as my father made more money, we moved to Bedado section right by the um, Almendares River. And I was about 10 or 12, 11, I forget, before we went to the United States, maybe 10. And this is the first time where the neighborhood was so quiet and there weren't traffic that I could actually go by myself outside the house and play by myself. This was freedom. I mean, I was beside myself. I walked out, there were kids gambling with marbles, playing marble. I learned to do that uh, with tops, uh, a, a variety of things. We made our own transportation. If you bought your stuff, a, a bicycle or something, you were square. Uh, you, you were not cool. What you did is you made a, um, a scooter uh, with two planks of, of uh, two by six wood. And for wheels, you took an old roller skate, you split it in half, the first two wheels up front, the first two, the last two wheels on the back. And in the angle of the, of the, um, of the, what would you call the, well, the wood that's vertical and horizontal, we'd make a little box there. And you'd carry your, your marbles and you carry your stuff, your kites, whatever. Um, and that's how you transport yourself, because sometimes the action of marbles or whatever we were doing was seven, eight, ten bucks away. You wanted to get there quick. Anyway, during the, during the spring, when the wind blew hard, what we did was fly kites. Again, you didn't buy a kite. We made our own kites. We made it out of light wood, and, and uh, we call it, um, translating, Chinese paper. And then it was never tight, it was wrinkled. Then you wet your hands, you sprinkle them uh, on the um, on the paper, it shrunk, and you had a beautiful um, tight, kite. Tight. But what we really wanted to do was have a kite fight, which they still have in China, they still have in India, and they still have in Cuba, by the way. What you did is you put razor blades, <clears throat> razor blades on the tail of the kite, you took a gillette uh, with two edges, you snapped it, broke it. Then you took a, a heavy toothpick and you put one blade vert- um, vertical to the other or perpendicular to the other. And you had several of these toothpicks with, with the blades and you put them on the, on the tail. When you were flying, you could get the, fl- the, the kite, if you were good, to go right or left. And if you could get the tail on the other guy's line, you cut him off. On a real windy day, if you were high on a, on, a, um, on a building, right on the top, remember there's no snow here, the tops are flat. You can actually stand on them. Um, the other kite cut off would fly, would go back two blocks on a windy day, landed past the malecon even on the water. 
uh, you'd lose your kite. On a bad day, you'd lose several kites. And we would fight uh, all the time. This was a thing of honor. So at one time, flying out of the, the building that we used to fly, many of us, we were a gang, here comes this black kite. Instead of a, a string for a, uh, a tail and little little bows, he had a ribbon. And uh, we used to call it the snake. And this person, which we never saw, he flew out of a little, kind of a darkish tower. We never saw the person. He'd cut us off every time. <laughs> like the Red Baron, but the Black Baron. <laughs> yes, yes, that was the Black Baron. So uh, sometimes we'd be flying, he wasn't there. Other time he'd come. I mean, we made our own kites. Believe me, we fought them. I didn't take a back step, but he did, he or she didn't either. So never could beat him. So this person you didn't see. So you're in a building, and he had no, a kite. He, he had it in another building. So the the story is that as I got older and I got more into fly fishing, and you know the kite uh, thing was tapering off. One day, there were less of us doing stuff. Kids have, you know, started playing um, baseball in Cuba. Was good soccer. I was first baseman. Uh, we we were leaving that. We were outgrowing it. I guess that's the word. And I had a big yellow kite that I had made, maybe two and a half feet. Um, she was slow, but she was beautiful. I'd fly her way up there. Uh, she couldn't move fast enough, so we, we didn't we didn't put any I didn't put any blades on her. I call her Matilda. And I took Matilda out and got up in the tower by myself, in the um, in top of the building by myself. And I was just watching it maybe one more time because I knew I wasn't going to fly it anymore. She's way up there, and all of a sudden, here comes a snake. And Matilda is slow. She's heavy. She's unarmed. She's dead. <laughs> <laughs> she's dead. And the thing came in fast and pulled up beside me. I'm sitting there. I can't drop fast enough. I can't bump him. There's nothing. You, and you know, can't that, say no because the snake kills everything it sees. It, it, yeah, yes. It, there's nothing I can do. I sit there, but sad because it, it's blowing hard, and Matilda's going to land on the water in the Malecon somewhere, or or on the street where cars are, are are driving through. And the thing stood there beside me and stood there. Uh, you know, I think he's just laughing. At me. And after a while. It moved out, and he left, and he didn't cut me off. And I wish I had met that person. I think it was an older person, but I never did. I took Matilda home. The old, the youngest of the gang was still flying uh, kites, and I, I, I gave him Matilda, and I never flew a kite again. That's an amazing story because in those early years, you really did not have a whole lot like the kids here in this country and, oh, and, no. the, and what we see here. And there you you played a simple game, but it was such a big part of your life. Yeah, you made your own kite. You made your own scooter. Now you buy everything. My grandchildren have so many, so many toys. They need a room for the toys. Uh, my heart is in, in that. And my son... Heart isn't in it, but he tells me society is such today that you can't get away. They, you get a birthday and they bring a truck full of toys. It's a different world. But yes, we made we made our toys. You know, uh, looking 
you know, reading some other stuff that Flip and everybody has spoken about you. I mean, you come from a very, very big world of fishing royalty. But I consider you, as do a lot of other people, the Renaissance man in a lot of ways. So in your background, all these things you've done and you've become an expert at, pistol, marksman, archer, mm -hmm. Tennis player. I know a little bit about tennis. Uh, yes, yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> a jazz historian, yes. outdoor writer, photographer, cook, uh, canoeist, all these things, flycaster, inventor. But tell me about your expertise, about being uh, an expert with the scent of a woman. Oh, the scent of a woman. I hear you speak I, about women. I, I love ladies. To me, women are ladies, all of them. There's some I don't want to talk to. There's some I may not like. But I came from Cuba, and we were descendant from northern Spain. And you open doors, and you walked on the outside of the of the sidewalk. And one of the things that has been good for me <clears throat> in meeting ladies and in dating women and so on is that I have the advantage over many men that I like to talk to the woman. I don't go talking, wondering what I'm going to do uh, you later. Know, the, later. Uh, I, I, you know, an interesting woman is a very exciting human being because while I have friends that are very interesting, she has a different way of looking at something, a different point of view. Even a film that we both like, Casablanca, and I'll have a lady tell me why she likes it, and I have to say sometimes, she's I didn't think of that. Uh, so it's a very interesting person. And when you talk to, to a woman, an intelligent woman, she realizes you want to talk to her and you're enjoying the thing, uh, I, I think you're more likely to get to know her. And that's the beauty of women. They yeah, bring on yeah. a completely different perspective. Has it been, how hard has it been since Marilyn passed five years ago? You were married well, a long time. Yes, we're married 49 years. Um, she died of ALS. It, it's been very hard because you, you get used to it. And now you're alone in the house. I date and so on, all this stuff. <clears throat> but it's been incredibly hard. Yes, yes. Indeed. And, but your son has probably filled a lot of that yes. void. You're fishing. I know you guys are still passionate about yeah. fishing and being together. Yeah. My son is my closest person, uh, for sure. We tell each other everything. and Too much uh, sometimes? Uh, so Too much. Sometimes <laughs> I'll tell him something in the dating and the data. Do I need to know that for the story? Do I need to know that for the story? Well, I thought I'd, I'd brag a little or whatever. Uh, but and and I have two wonderful grandchildren, and you know I'm Grandpa Chico, and they own me. They want my car, and I'd hand them the car and let them go with it. You know, and just tell them be careful driving it. There's a Hell's Bay in the back. Bye bye. Yeah, you know? right. I, I I just. But yes, it, it's been very easy. Also, my brother who lives five blocks away, and I can call him and so on. Has uh, been very good. That's great. Let's go back now to Miami. Um, you get to Key West. You didn't spend much time there in 1959. Your, your family had to get out of Cuba yeah. you, because of Castro, and he was going, going to take everything. I mean, what was well, the, the mindset about leaving and, and that whole process? My dad And the heartbreak. I can't even imagine the heartbreak. Oh, you leave everything behind. My dad didn't think that, last, that Castro would last. He thought he'd be going back uh, as he had done before in other situations. Um, so he thought a couple of years or something, he'd go back and never thought he'd last. 
his whole life, but he did. My dad never went back to Cuba. So very difficult. For my dad in particular, it was difficult because he had made money and now he was in a country that he didn't speak the language. And I think even worse yet, he he didn't know the customs, he didn't know the culture, and he didn't want to know it. He liked the Cuban culture. And, he was know, Cuban. He was Cuban, and, and he couldn't convert. In my case, I learned English. I already spoke English pretty well. I learned English real, real quick. Dating, I found there were no chaperones. Uh, jazz was here. I was home. Right. I was cool in the pool, and everybody. I have friends that fly fish. I had little John Emery, Norman Duncan, who I see all the time, Flip, of course, Flip Pallet. So it, it was easier for me. For him, it was very difficult. Now, my mom, she was very open-minded. She learned some English. She loved um she loved uh, Nat King Cole. She loved um, Sinatra, but basic, mainly she loved Nat King Cole. She could sing all those words, uh, the, the lyrics to all those songs. And by the way, my mother had a had a very heavy accent. You know, she she was older and very heavy English accent. But if she sang um, Nat King Cole's uh, "Too Young," oh, there was no accent. And she would sing that, and then she would come back. That was pretty good. Yeah, that was very, very good, Mom. <laughs> you know, but there was no accent when she did that or Frank Sinatra's songs or something like that. I, I don't know why she got in. She had the, that ability. Yeah, she like she, an actress. Yeah, yeah, she she could do that. She lived to a hundred and two and a half, and six weeks before he died, she was still sharp. She still. It, um, had Cuban meals, black beans and rice, palomilla steak, blah, blah, blah. And um, she drank scotch, but only on the rocks, very little rocks. And she never got upset. And if you were fixing her a drink, uh, but you poured water in it, which she wouldn't like, she wouldn't say no, she wouldn't be upset or anything. She'd say, oh, Andy, I see you're fixing a drink for yourself too. <laughs> She wasn't going to be upset because yeah. she wasn't going to have it. Yeah, she just go make her own. Yes, the way yeah. she liked it. The way she liked it. Uh, Did you have a strict family? A what? A strict family. They were they were very successful. Um, Did they like keep you within a small boundary <clears throat> of your freedom when you were younger and your wildness? If you had any wildness. Uh, um, Where did that discipline come my, from? My Did they see you as yeah, a disciplined person? Okay, my wildness. My dad and my mom had some control. My dad, deep down, sometimes he would just, with our mom knowing, let the wildness go. So this was cool. But we did have some things. Dad and mom believed that a family, whatever they do at dinner time, you sit, you sit, you don't watch TV, you sit and you talk uh, at dinner time. The family, that was the time the family got together. Also, you weren't going to sit uh, at dinner time with a t-shirt you know you put a, a you, you put a shirt on uh button shirt and in winter time um a long sleeve shirt wasn't necessary but it was encouraged right interesting uh, that kind of a thing and uh, maryland coming from um fairly strict family to in in uh, very northern pennsylvania another world from mine also the the, the parents th thought 
the same way. You sat and you talked at the time. So when Marilyn and I had Stephen, we sat on that table that's sitting there, uh, which came from her home in Pennsylvania, and and uh, we would talk, and we wouldn't turn the television on or anything else. What's happening in school? Uh, even if Stephen and I had talked about fishing some and blah blah blah, but uh, so I believe on that. I believe one moment where in today's world you're not texting, okay, while right. you're talking, well, right. while you're having supper uh, with the family. After all, it's just a few minutes that you're talking. You know, do you think that this might be very similar, being having a family and being influenced with a, a, a strict right and wrong way? to live your life. Uh, do you think that's similar to like bone fishing that is such a demanding fish and it made it easier to become a philo uh, philosopher? You said in a video, fishing, you have to be a philosopher. You have to convince yourself as to what you're doing and being the difficulties of what you're trying to accomplish. It's difficult. So we have to philosophize as to why we do this. Yes, I do. And I think that that, that mindset of being a philosopher even goes to the point that I mean, when you bonefish first, Andy, you, you've given up eating the fish. You're not going to eat, and you're not going to catch anything to eat, and I like to eat fish. Uh, you may not catch anything all day or make hook one fish all day. I mean, think about it. You could have gone to the, to the patch reef and hooked 40 fish, 15 of which you take home. This is, you got to philosophize. It's windy. Maybe you have a bad day, Andy, and you're not doing so well, and the wind is coming from your casting arm, and you're going to make a bad cast, and you're not doing well, and you catch nothing, and you're a great angler, and you have a very good boat, and maybe you have a friend or a guy that's tremendous, and you catch nothing. But you philosophize that, hey, I went bone fishing. I was out in the flats. I saw bonefish tailing. Uh, I saw stingrays. I saw an eagle fly above me. I was in the bonefish world. Uh, I was hunting for bonefish, and you're happy. You went bonefish. It isn't, I didn't catch anything today. You're above that. Right. You philosophize that, and I'm very comfortable with that, and I know you are too. Not all the time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really. Gave, I gave you the best I could. Yeah, I know. you the best. I'm telling you, it's some days. You know, you've you've done this, and you spend a lot of time, and so, many, 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 many times, you're out there. You don't even see anything, That's and true. that gets so aggravating. And I understand the whole philosophy aspect because we're trying to make this balance as to why we do these things, and that's where passion comes into play. I agree. Fully agree. Your heart. And that's why we get so connected to this world. And so let's go back to Miami. You guys, the royalty of saltwater mm -hmm. anglers, and the fact that I, I believe and I call you royalty, the royal family, Stu Apt, yourself, and, 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 and Flip, Norman Duncan, even though he was not quite as famous as you guys, I think, you know, but he yeah, was, because he he was significant. Oh, very much so. He just didn't stay in the fishing world. He was an engineer. He helped uh, uh, build the, the bridges in the Florida Keys. But they were wood and whatever right. before and, and uh, restored. So he didn't stay in that world. That's why he didn't become as well known as Flip and I are. But yes, he, he, was he came up with all kinds of things. Uh, Tell me about some of your early inventions. You know, what, your bridge lines, et cetera. The bridge lines. What happened was that basically in the early 50s, I mean, the late 50s and early 60s, 
we didn't have any money. Um, you could go out on a date for $8, but we didn't have $8 sometimes. And so we wanted to fish um, and date. Um, the order of preference changed with what we did the last time. See, so if we were dating now, we wanted to fish. We were fishing, uh, we wanted to date. Uh, but at any rate, we found that there were big tarpon in the bridges. If you fish those big tarpon from the bridge, we didn't have a boat to say the least, you hooked them, you lost them. You weren't gonna land an 80 pound tarpon on an eight weight rod um, with 12 pound tippet, which is what we did today, or 20 pound tippet. He'd make a couple jumps to thrill us and then he'd go under the bridge and you lose your fly line. That's the end of that tune. Couldn't afford to lose several fly lines. In there. Right. So in the meantime, we were thinking how to make a fly line. We ended up taking 200 pound mono, stretching it between two, po two cloth uh, uh, drying poles, you know, that to, to dry um, your, your clothes. And we sanded down the, the, shape of the, taper. A, the taper of a weight forward line. What we didn't realize then is that what made the line cast the fly was the weight. This sloppy casting that we did to make the cast, it wasn't presentation. I mean, we cast flies, big flies, to imitate the mullet. I mean, the, the, there was no artificial material then, so the whole chicken gave its life to make that fly. To cast that, we just needed weight. You didn't need a front taper and a and running line. We could have tied it, really, to 200 or 300 pound mono and make probably better cast, the line would have been a little heavier, but we didn't know that. So we made the thing, it took forever. Um, we probably had no finger uh, in the fingertip. We had probably no no digit. Right. Uh, yeah, we could have done a more profitable job. Uh, but at any rate, we would take these lines. We soon found that they cast okay. Uh, we put pure silicon on it, they cast well. But if you put it in the reel, you'd never take it out. It'd come out like a spring, and it would never straighten out again. So and Memory. We, yeah, memory. So we couldn't put it on any reel. So with um, pipe, um, pipe cleaners, um, I don't think Flip smoked a pipe, but John, John Emery, um, Norman, and I were pipe smokers. I still have my Dunhill straight grain and everything else. Anyway... We would make big rolls uh, and wrap the line on, on loops that were maybe three feet around. Like a big yo-yo? Yeah. Big Cuban yo-yo maybe? Not on a yo-yo, no, it, without anything. We just make the loops and-, okay. and, and With the pipe cleaners hold that loop yeah, together. Yeah, they hold that loop together. And we'd make 10 of those lines each and we'd carry on our side, uh, um, holding the loop by our waist and the fly rod on the other go down the bridge, put one of these lines on, hook a tarpon, promptly lose it, put another fly line on, <coughs> and so on. <coughs> so um, we, we could afford to lose the lines. Obviously, before you ask me, we never landed any tarpon. <laughs> <laughs> 
if we'd have done it a thousand million times, if we it's could not happen. Oh, oh, but from the you can imagine from the bridge. I mean, but it was it, it was a cheap thrill. Right. It was a cheap thrill, uh, and so these were clear lines. Obviously, they were they were monofilament. Um, with the time, as 1969, 1970, um, Flip and I started to become a little more known, not a lot, but a little. And we started working with different companies. Uh, They wouldn't pay us, of course, but they'd give us some tackle, and that was wonderful then. And um, started talking to companies about making a clear line because you couldn't see it and so on. We didn't realize at the time how many other applications there were, but and at the beginning, at least for me, the companies didn't listen. Eventually, some of the companies, Scientific Anglers and Corland and whatever, started to listen, but there was a big problem. Uh, they couldn't make the line with the mono core and, and clear um, coding. Uh, coding that would stretch that both materials would stretch at, at the same time. And not separate. It, and not separate. And they did for 10 years. I, I think it was 1980 or something before they wouldn't separate too frequently. Right. Um, but eventually the clear line came about, floaters and sinkers and so on, which is a great line for many, many applications. And like a specialized line, it has its place. In the right place, they're wonderful. In the wrong place... Uh, they're not, and, and that's it. Tell me about this photograph of you standing on the bank with this monster tarpon. Where was that caught? When and who who who, who did you catch it with? I, I caught it with Flip Pilot in Loggerhead. Um, we we drove down there, and Flip had a uh, a Challenger, a nineteen fifty two Challenger, which was one of the boats uh, we used, and um, we pulled over there. And within, as I recall, within a relatively short time, in the bank, in, uh, over the bank, in, in three feet of water or less, comes this big wake. And it's not coming too slow. It's pushing, you have certain speed. And a fish moving real fast is not a really good fish to cast to. You know, you, you're hoping he's coming slow or something. But this guy is moving fairly fast and flips out. You better hurry up and... I don't think I can turn the boat fast enough. And of course, the Challenger is very small. Uh, flip tippy. Puts, oh, tippy. It's, it's as tippy, uh, much more so than a super skiff. No, no, this thing is, is a round bottom, you know, arch bottom, like an arch bottom canoe. It's very fast, but you better be on your knees, not sitting down on your knees so you don't fall off. Yes, very tippy. Anyway, Barely get there, barely strip enough line out of the um, number three Fionor wedding cake that I think you can see on that picture. And I had a, a, a I believe, an 11-weight um, fiberglass Fenwick that today would load perfectly with a with a today's nine weights, which are a little heavy nine. That's how soft it was. Anyway, make the cast. The fish breaks on it, takes the, the fly and keeps going. I tighten up. I got the fish on. And, you know, we fought the fish and everything else. And That's a classic photograph, yeah. you know, yeah. with a old school 
you know, gaff in your hand, the hand gaff through the lower lip, yeah. holding them up out of the water. What was fishing like back then? What did you see? How many fish were there? How easy was it? And what years are we talking? We're talking in the sixties, right? Tarpon, we fished the tarpon in the in the early sixties, but then a lot of us flip an eye that are really old fashioned to the core were using bamboo. We could put a, a hard four pounds on uh, with twelve pound tippet. Always the the uh, the weak spot was the rod. Um, we learned to some extent not to high stick with a bamboo rod because it would break. So we were uh, fighting lower on the rod, uh, but lower on the bamboo rod, you know, which subdue a 12 pound snook, you know. So we were jumping tarpon and bothered them and everything, but we weren't landing tarpon. Fiberglass came in. I think Flip and I resisted fiberglass. I think we were, if it doesn't grow on trees, it's not a fly rod. Thank you very much. Um, we were wrong about that. Uh, and fiberglass had metal ferrules then, right. which you talk about a flat spot. This was a flat spot. Um, some of us used it back and forth, but we weren't thrilled. And then in the early 60s, 63, 62, I don't remember, Jimmy Green on the West Coast invented the internal ferrule where you took as you do now, two materials and put them together. There's no metal. There was nothing. Oh my God! For one, one thing was that the rod looked felt to us like a one-piece rod. But two, out of California, uh, Lima Glass, I believe it was Lima Glass, maybe Grizzly, two companies started importing or sending to to Miami one-piece nine-foot fiberglass rods, and they were wonderful too. So either the two piece or the one piece, we were into fiberglass. Bamboo rods, we never really seriously used them again for fishing. When we got into these rods, we could put pressure. You could now catch them. We could now catch them. Um, we were a long ways from what you're, you're using now. But we were putting a lot more pressure. I don't know how much, maybe seven pounds or something. I don't know how much, but we were. And then we were catching. Then then we were catching. And then um, with Al Fluger, the first time Al Fluger and I teased an amberjack in 40 feet of water with blue runners, and Al cast to him and caught a 40-pound amberjack on fly. And I chased him with a boat, and in, in 40 feet of water, 50 feet, he never got to the backing. I was right on top of him. Um, and we landed him. He could do that because he had a fiberglass rod now. You had a weapon now. We, we had a weapon. The reels, we had Seamasters. I knew Seamaster. I know Bob McChristian from, I have the number three Seamaster uh, 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 S-handle red knob. Wow. In which... With a tool, you can take the spindle of the reel off. Have it in the back. I have a photo on my iPhone. It's red knob, curly Q. I knew I knew Bob very, very well. Anyway, we either use that or we use a Finor uh, number three wedding cape. The number four carry more line, but the spindle was so long and skinny, it, it bent, and so you had to use a number three Finor. 175 yards of backing. And with that, I caught sailfish, the first sailfish I caught just over there, and it's the first black 
Finor number number three, wedding cake, with 175 yards of backing. We caught all the tarpon, caught sailfish, caught everything. Now you could be effective. You had a rod and a reel. That that was a tool now. Yeah, absolutely. What was uh, when you ran out into the Marquesas back then? Maybe even like Loggerhead, because I fish Loggerhead a lot. I know you, you know, and I just love that place. And there are so many people there. And I just sometimes we can still get them. You can still be really, really effective, but you've got to be good. There's a, there are a few fish around that are willing to play, but I can't even imagine what you guys saw, like when you ran into the Marquesas. The Marquesas. You ran there in the center when you went inside the island. Oodles of fish. You didn't have to be good. We used very big yellow uh, and orange flies or yellow and grizzly. Big flies because we believe if he sees it, he eats it. And actually, it was true. If he saw it, he ate it. Um, and so we that could, was the fly design. Just make it that, big enough that they can find it. That's right. And you know, had we thrown a small fly, I'm sure we could have caught them. But if they take a big fly, it's easy for us to see the fly in the water and so on. So it just worked. And I remember jumping fish until I was tired, landing many, many fish until I was tired. It was, it was another world. Right. And it tapered off and tapered off. I think a, a, a big um, moment was when Bill Curtis came up with a polling platform and Bob Hughes was making the Hughes bone fisher. And now a professional, um, a doctor, an attorney, could buy a skiff that he could hook to his boat with a polling platform that floated relatively shallow, a foot of water or so, because the original Hughes is about a good V, um, and go fishing. And then the average guy could do that because we... We'd be effective. (coughs) Excuse me. Our boats were custom built. You had to. You took a boat, a hull that had a big, tall uh, uh, freeboard, and cut a foot off of it and put this. Everything was custom. And in the at the beginning, there were no polling platform. We would stand on the engine and pole, which the thought of standing on that little thing, and then Flip or Norman, I know it wasn't me, came up with the idea. Okay, if we're going to stand in that little place. Let's put an outdoor carpet on it. And they would put a little outdoor carpet, especially on the... Um, on the cowling of the engine? Yeah, on the cowling. We stood on the cowling. Right. Uh, on the um, the mercury. Now, the black mercury was very tall. Remember, they very... But with the polling platform, if he fell off, at least you have a little bit of clearance before you you know, you know hit the prop. But then it was so exposed. Oh, oh, everything. We didn't think of it... I don't remember us having any accidents on any, but again, you're young. Accident, what accident? You had balance back then. We had balance back then. <laughs> now I work every day, do Tai Chi to have some balance. <laughs> Tell me about Snook. You said that's always been your favorite fish, and Bill Curtis, when he told you, let's go catch one right now. Yes. You know, people tell you what their favorite fish is, and I know what yours is, uh, and so on. And they explain, well, I like the tarpon because he's beautiful and he jumps. And I tell you, I like the snook because he's close to the mangroves. And I like that whirl of the, of the, of the, of the brackish water, which I do. And uh, he's always so mysterious. But I th- I've come to a conclusion that the reason, the reason for that, <clears throat> excuse me, the reason is really chemistry. 
you like that fish and you right. just do and you you can make the dance dance it, 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 yes you 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 like that you know like you meet a girl and it's chemistry and you think she's beautiful oh another guy thinks she's okay no for you is not okay and her feet chemistry. follow your feet yeah it's perfect it, it's perfect it's it, there's a chemistry and yeah. i i like that fish a big snook in a foot of water cruising a 15 18 pound snook whatever it makes me nervous. I mean, I, I just, I, I just quiver. Uh, it just does something for me. Like, a, like in the bonefish world, uh, in the old days, especially a big mutton tailing in the flat, just that big pink tail waving around. Hello, uh, oh my God, that's. But the snook is my favorite fish. I caught him in Cuba, and I already loved that fish from the beginning. She and I, you know, we were. I think it's, it's, it's chemistry. And Steve Huff says the same. Steve, he too had snook in his blood from day one. And he's caught it all and he's done it all. I sure. mean, what hasn't Huff done? Well, you've written the book, Fly Fishing for Bonefish, Fly Fishing for Redfish. Yes. What about Fly Fishing for Snook? How come you, that there was never You know, it's a good, good uh, question. It's, there's not as many, uh, it, it would be highly specialized because bonefish is worldwide and redfish is from... You can fly fish for redfish from the Carolinas and even further north all the way to Mexico. That's a long shoreline. So I, that book has enough of an audience. This book wouldn't have much of an audience, I don't think. Uh, so I never did, and I don't know. She's my girl, and maybe I don't want to share her. She's like that kite. <laughs> your kite that you flew. What was the name of Matilda? What was the name like of your kite? Matilda. Matilda. Kite, yeah. That's the Matilda of your fishing world. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, that's right. You know, it's um, it's interesting in that we all have mentors and heroes. Um, and I think sometimes that, that term hero may be a little exaggerated. Mm -hmm. It may be influenced a lot. Um. People ask me, who's your hero? I don't really have heroes per se. I have people that have influenced me, that have introduced me to a certain new part of my life that took on, uh, uh, changed my life, those type of people. Did you have that mentor in the fishing world? Was that uh, the early guy uh, that brought, that your father brought to the Keys? Don, what was his name? Uh, Don Raban. Raban, was yes. he your... Well, the influence that directed he, you towards this world. He was the first person that gave me a fly casting lesson. He wasn't a good caster, super good caster, but he got me going. And I, you know, I have a warm feeling for that. Right. He showed me Joe Brooks streamers in the days where you put chenille on the body and the wings were tied up front. Right. So it tangled in the wind real well. Now you you. You put the wings at the back of the at the beginning of the bend so that you don't have. But the the original uh, Joe Brooks had chenille, the wings tied up front, and then a hackle up front. Pretty, but it, it foul. It, oh, it, it would foul. foul but 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 did, but did you have a mentor that kind of like that influenced you? I mean, he taught. <coughs> so Don Ramon got you into the the arc. Yeah, Don Ramon, yeah. And the beauty of the cast, the unrolling of the fly line, which two. <laughs> was my inspiration to become a fishing person. Ernie Schwiebert was casting in Aspen oh. when I was eight years old. I was on my bike, I had my baseball mitt, I was going to practice. Uh -huh. I see the arc of this line and it captivated me. And I rode over there and Ernie Schwiebert, the great Ernie Schwiebert. I know him. 
taught me how to cast. And then a number of years later, he would come into Aspen and we were fishing their frying pan. And so matching the hatch obviously was the great innovative book on and time flies and matching hatches. Here, Ernie Schwiebert, a number of years later, was sleeping on my couch. We would go up the frying pan and I had a Vega at the time. <laughs> and I would be in the river fishing and he was tying flies on my Vega and waiting out there and handing me different flies to fish. Oh my goodness. I mean, those were my roots. How wonderful. Yeah, but it started with the arcing of a fly line. Yeah. It's like, wow, what poetic majesty this is, being yeah. able to throw this string like this. Um, but what kind of got me into this whole thing was Flip and Walker's K Chronicles. I was a skier in Aspen. Every Sunday morning I'd wake up to see Flip. and and. I didn't know him, but he kind of like come with me on the, the opening of the show yeah. on this wild adventure. And to me, that was getting me, you know, that sensation. I've got to do this for the, the people that you were surrounded with. You guys were the innovators in that generation. Were the earlier fishermen that you were inspired by well, in terms of heroes or as you said, um, Influences. Influences. When the four of us were together, uh, Norman, Flip, Little John, and I, we had to invent everything. No one was teaching us. We would go in the parking lot of University of Miami where it has a, had a lot of lights, I don't know now, but a lot of light at night and cast until our arm fall off. We taught each other how to do all of that. Um, because we couldn't afford rods and things. Uh, rods cost $50 and more. Uh, we made our own rods. We turned our own cork. We even, on a wood lathe, turned our own wooden plugs, made chuggers and so on. We made our own flies. Uh, we had to create. We didn't have a choice. Later, I met Joe Brooks at the, at the bar at the Rod and Reel Club in Miami Beach and got some information from him. But we had to really, and the old timers in those days, some of the old timers, they weren't well known like Joe Brooks, but they were fishing the geese and they didn't, they didn't volunteer as much information for me as. Uh, why, was, why was everybody so secretive in the fishing world from day one? Yes, yes, very much so. Now, when I met uh, Lee Wolf, he offered me information. He would he would tell me, he had his own philosophy about things, but right. but he would tell me. And what about Lefty? How did what role did he play in that? Yeah, that I, era. I was never close to Lefty. He came to Miami around the month that I met my wife, which was um, January '66. He ended up with Flip and so on, but we were never that close, so mm -hmm. he wasn't an influence for me. Um, Lee Wolf was. Tell, let's speak about the Miami Rod and Reel Club. That was really a big deal back then. Yes, if I'm not right. Yes, it was. It started in, I believe, around 1937, and um, it was the place to be. That's where the anglers were, and so on and so forth. What? Um, how important was that world record uh, redfish you caught, that 42-pound, 5-ounce, and 12-pound test? It was very important for me. Um, it broke um, 
I forget who was Billy Pater, who had a 16 pounder, and I bought the 40. I got the 42 pounder. Um, I went to North Carolina, invited by um, Joel Arrington, who was a head of travel and tourism, to catch this big redfish. And um, Aaron, um, oh, I can't think of his name now. Anyway, the guide that was going to take us was supposed to be an expert in the flats, and I was going to be able to sight cast to these fish. So we get there, it's blowing a bit, and the guy takes a look at me, uh, some Cuban guy uh, with a, a, a sissy fly rod, not taking you. What? We're, we're at the dock here. Um, no, I got a reputation to uh, uphold. And... Um, <clears throat> wow. I got a reputation to uphold and um, not taking you. So the guys, uh, uh, Joe said, look, I'm a head of travel and tourism. You're going to be all over the country. I know. I don't want that reputation when fishing with this guy. So we talked for a little while, and he thinks about it. We're at the dock. And he says, follow me. He walks out of the dock. I'm walking, walking behind him. He's walking fast. He's walk, walk, walk. He gets to this restaurant. And he said, um, uh, Vernon, Vernon Arrington was his name. Um, two, two Vernon omelets, one for him and one for me. Uh, Joel, you get whatever you want. Okay, we're having breakfast. I've always been a heavy eater, and 30 uh, some odd years ago, believe me, I could put away a fried cow and 20 fried <laughs> potatoes. And um, it was a five-egg omelet that had everything. I know it had mushrooms and everything else. I polished it with bread. Somehow, I passed, you know, I, I crossed the river. Uh, I said, uh, okay. So, wow, we're going in the boat. I hope we can pull well. It's a 23-foot inboard outboard, and uh, push-pull is not in the boat or in his vocabulary. I said, how are you going to approach the boat? I, I, the, how are you going to approach the, the redfish? I've been doing that for many years, boy. You know, don't worry. So sure enough, he putt-putts out there, and the flat is four feet of water. So, okay, I expect that. He sees a school, and, I, and he says, you see the fish? I look up there, a school of maybe 40 fish swimming a foot or so under the water, they show up like a like a neon sign. Are you kidding? Yes, I can see them. They're way out there, but you can see them. He putt-putts, putt-putt, gets upwind from them. It's good. Um, he gets within 200 feet or so, and he shuts the engine off, and he said, uh, sick him. Sick him. He said, I can't cast that far. And he said, Boy, I was told you were good. <laughs> I, yeah, but I have a fly rod. Oh, my God. Let's see you cast. Well, I have a 11-way um, rod. Um, I have a fly that I took my sailfish flies to cast to these big fish. All I could do, tighten the loop, concentrate, I throw maybe 80 feet. He said, that it? I said, yeah. Can't you just throw another 50 feet further? <laughs> no. Oh, geez. So the next question is, so what reputation are you trying to uphold? <laughs> <laughs> so little by little working together, 
he gets me within roughly the 80 feet with the wind a little behind my back. I make a cast in front of the school. Um, two or three fish parted, big fish. Immediately they move out, sort of move out of the side, and this big redfish comes up. I think he was 70 or 65 pounds. He followed the fly, followed the fly, he wouldn't take it. I felt I was going to die. He gets back again, gets in, gets back on the fish, blah, 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 makes another cast, two or three really big fish, but nothing like the fish I want now. Take the fly, I hook him, clear the line. Um, it's open water, what can I say? I have 12-pound tippet. <clears throat> Where's that redfish going to go, right? Right. So I land the fish. I'm not thrilled. I said, this fish is not going to be big enough. He said, this is a very big fish. You're just thinking of that monster. Forget him. I can't forget her. I can't forget her. Then I started looking, and I said, oh, it's a huge redfish. So we weighed the fish. Um, Joel took pictures with, with his Nikon. Weighed the fish. It was 42 pounds, 5 ounces. I was very happy. Um, I keep thinking, I still think about that fish, Andy. I still think about that fish. Do you so still redfish? Do you ever go to Louisiana to fish for those yes, monsters over yes, there? Yes, I do, and I've caught very big redfish there. That's a wonderful fishery. It's unbelievable. Oh, unbelievable indeed. And it's like the good old days bone fishing in the Keys yes, in the 60s, they, they but take, that's redfishing today. They take flies very well, and they're very big, especially in the winter and so on. Uh, yes, yes. I have done, I don't know how many trips around the world fishing. We had a f fishing series for seven years. We did 81 shows from around the world. And you know, you've been traveling. How many locations do you go to and you go, it's not what they're selling, right? Yes. And But Louisiana, I've always wanted to go there. And we went there, and, oh, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, my son and I, and it was just absolutely outstanding. It's like, are you serious? Oh, are yeah. you kidding me? They're big, they're dumb. Uh, they're beautiful. The, the first time I went there, um, there were many fish, like you say, and everything. And there was a fish sitting there, maybe 25 pounds or 30. I don't know what. I make a cast. It's not really a good cast. By my standard, not by the redfish. He turned around, took the fly, and he went. I hooked him. Beautiful. Yeah. And the guide is <laughs> Can we like. we do that again? Yeah. The, the guide is like, that was a good cast. Okay, in Louisiana, this is in Alamorada. The guy cranks up and takes me home. Right, right, right. <laughs> but yes, they're, they're very easy. Is it um, how aggravating or frustrating is it having seen this fishery decline? Yes, it's still the good old days. I believe we still go down. We can catch tarpon. We catch bonefish. We can catch all these fish. But you've seen the epic. Um, yes. Fishing in, in Florida. What does that do to your heart? How frustrating or anything like that? No, it's not frustrating. It's, to me, it's tragic. Uh, I realize there are a lot more fishermen. And that has a huge disadvantage. I'll get to that in a minute. It's not just that there are a lot more. But what we've done to the environment and continue to do is water quality. We, I can still go to Flamingo and find a bunch of snook. But it's not the same. If I caught four snook fishing in the Florida Keys, um, well, fishing in Flamingo, let's say, and I caught four snook fishing 
20, 40 years ago is not the same fish. Let me tell you why. Those four snook years ago, you pull me, they're turtle grass, they're potholes, the water is clear. We finally see a fish. It hasn't been a really good day, but we're seeing some. I cast, I hook them. Then we hunt for another fish. There's one laying against the shoreline. We fish. Okay. Now, there's hardly any turtle grass. There's hardly anything. What we do is we find 10 or 12 snook against one key and, and, and bleak sand and mud and so on, and we catch four or five snook. I enjoy them and so on, but it's not the same hunt. There's still some of what I'm doing, and some of the great guides still offer that, but it's not hunting all day. You know, it's, they're not spread out. It's not the same hunt. Yeah, I, I see this. It's interesting. I just did a, a fundraiser for BTT up in Atlanta. Uh-huh. And I was I'm telling a founding member of BTT. I know those guys. Yeah, I know who you are. And uh, we, so we did this fundraiser, and we were started to talk about the difference of and how BTT got started. And I was explaining to these guys that at the time in 1996, I was fishing in the Fall Fly Bonefish Tournament with Harry Spear. Oh yeah. And so we have lines in at seven in the morning, lines out at three. We're up on Shell Key. We're watching these fish tail. My first cast, I catch a 10-pound, 12-ounce bonefish. We put them in the live well. We're going to run them over to the dock to weigh them, pulling off the flat. Harry says, if this was going to be a perfect day, we'd catch a 12-pound fish before we get to the channel. I say, Harry, there are two fish tailing right over there. He spins the boat. I catch a 13-pound, 12-ounce bonefish. Oh, my goodness. Throw them in the live well. Now we run to the dock. We catch six fish in the afternoon. A long story short, Right. Shortly thereafter that, I started to see only a few places where we could find the big fish. Oh, now we're not catching nearly as many. And then all of a sudden, I hear these guys talking about Bonefish Tarpon Trust and raising money to check out and trying to really scientifically establish why we are not seeing the fish we used to see. And initially, I thought, well, these are a bunch of old guys from Ocean Reef that can't catch fish. But they knew, they saw because they fished a lot, they fished all the time, that this was a declining environment. And I too Absolutely. started to understand and say and agree, yes, we have an issue here. Indeed, indeed. And these guys, myself included, because uh, Tom Davidson called me to be one of the founding members, had a passion. And you got to have a passion for this to, to do that. Right. you you, you got to have a passion. But yes, those big bonefish tapered off. I remember Paul Tejera, Captain Paul Tejera, tell me at his best, he caught several 14-pounders, and he caught a 15-pound something, almost 16-pounder. In a big money event. In a big money. Yeah. And that world tapered off. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, we're seeing a lot of small bonefish, which we need to see that. It can't just be the big fish, and maybe some of that is coming back. But, but, but you know what's one of the most fascinating things, uh, Chico, is understanding that since we've eliminated the commercial fishing in Cuba, we are getting the bonefish fry from Cuba that have been pushed up with the Gulf Stream, and now Key West is now prolific with smaller fish. And True. it was BTT and their scientists that went down and said, we need those fish as much as you need yeah. those fish. Yeah. I mean, what a great story. You, you cut your teeth on bonefish in Cuba, and now we are now going back to Cuba, your roots to save our fishery here in Florida. Amazing. I, who would have thought of that? Who would have thought of that? I think I've always thought that the 
the real issue is not so much to help the bonefish, and, and we should do that. It's about improve, to help to improve the bonefish's neighborhood. The turtle grass, the snapping shrimp, the little crabs, the, the, the bait fish. We need that neighborhood with everybody that lives in it, the stingray and the small sharks and the big sharks and the pinfish. And when all that food and everything in there, where all that hors d'oeuvres is at the table, is when the party continues. And bonefish and, and permit and other fish move in with an income and tide to feed. It's the neighbor, the, the fish's neighborhood. You know, it's very well documented in the magazine Garden and Gun. Monty Burke wrote a story about the water quality in Florida and the issues that we have with the farmers, the sugar, the canals, um, the government, the money. Do you think in your heart that what we can do with BTT is it's about preserving or do you think we can really reinstate good, good quality water in your heart? And we want to. We want to hope we can get there. <clears throat> to reinstate the quality of water uh, is beyond helping the bonefish or the environment. I think the problems are up north. Right. Um, the pollution, the spraying, some of the levees that don't let the water come down, even if it was good. Right. On top, uh, on just north of the Tamiami Trail, running east and west. Uh, when I look at that stuff. You think you understand it, you keep looking and it gets more complex and there's so many people that are hurting the environment, others because it's dumb, others because they're trying to create work and it, it, it's incredible, but uh, it's not just improving the bonefish and that's good, that's one thing, but I think we need quality of water. Yeah. I just try to think of the life I've led with a short recent exposure to bow hunting for big elk in Colorado. Oh. I've been a skier in Aspen. My family moved there in 1960. And a lot of people talk about the evolution and the gravitational pull to bigger money, more development, which we've seen here in Florida. And as a skier and as an elk hunter and as a fisherman, I, I, I really can't help but say, yes, these are the good old days because we're never going to go back. So we just no. have to appreciate what we have now and do the best we can to preserve what we have now for our future generations. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And when I said um, I wanted to go back to we got more fishermen, yes, I wish there were less fishermen so I could fish in the flat by myself, so to speak. But the problem is the amount of fish, fishermen that we have now is tenfold, fiftyfold what it used to be. But that huge amount of fishermen don't have the passion that the few of us had then for the environment, etc. Many come in very quickly uh, with the information on the internet. And I find a great amount of them have no respect or love for the environment. They throw garbage in the water. Uh, I don't know what they think that the outdoors are, but they treat it terribly. When I fish Miami, uh, I try not to fish Biscayne Bay and all that through the weekend. But occasionally we do late in, in, on a Sunday or, or early on a Monday. I can't tell you the amount of balloons, uh, garbage floating from, from birthday parties and stuff that happens on Sunday. I mean, floating and we pop the balloons and put them on the boat and pop this and do this. And you spend your day picking up trash. Picking up trash. 
these people, you know, they're in a boat uh, having beer and, and drinking and swimming. I get all of that. I've done all of that. But have a garbage can in your boat. Have something to put. But they don't. They don't. Yeah. Well, all I know is... All I know is I am such a small piece of the puzzle and we can just try to do our best to try to influence other pieces to, to care and to think outside the box and rely on others. And hopefully as a, with a band of pieces, we can become that huge piece of pie that might be effective. You know, like what Bull Sugar and what, you know, the Everglades Foundation, what we're all trying yeah. to do, BTT. If we keep stepping one step at a time, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We have to because we're the few left that have the passion, that have respect. Now, there are young people I, that are, have the passion. They're not as many, but they have the passion. When right. I teach a school anywhere in the country, when I teach a school, part of what I inject in there is the environment and the taking care of it and having a love and enjoying the trip over there and enjoying where you're being pulled. Don't fish just for the moment of the strike. Enjoy the whole thing. Fish for the sunrise, the clouds, the water. Yeah, everything. The trees, the bushes. And, the, yeah. yeah, and that doesn't mean you'll be looking at an eagle when your guide is pulling and you should be concentrating. That's the moment to be hunting. Right. Definitely do that. But enjoy the rest of the trip. Uh, as I said before, I've been known for like love to eat. Uh, and I bring a big Cuban sandwich or a big submarine, and I bring fruits and everything. And I take a, I take a civilized lunch. Uh, <laughs> I, I really do. And I enjoy everything else. I got to say, first, we could probably give the finger to Castro because <laughs> you have been so successful and you have been so inspiring. Uh, to so many of us and you built a sport you built a life and you're passionate you you said goodbye to burger king a long time ago <laughs> and you lived a big rich life so congratulations on that and to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being such a great friend you're welcome i'm highly flattered and i'm delighted to be here with you thank you you kiss your face <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. It was an honor to spend the afternoon with Chico in his tranquil home in Miami, Florida. I hope to do it again soon. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Adios, amigos. <laughs>